shelf-shedding movie show hosted by my friends and regular guest of Ranking Review, Jason Dubray. And the benefit of this is that the shelf-shedding movie show does a lot of different types of movies than Ranking Review. They have a bigger variety over on that side of the fence. More historically significant films, more sort of reaching into more different genres to be recognized by the Shelf Shedding Movie Shows. They'll do drama, they'll do more Oscar bait, they'll do, you know, movies don't tend to feature on my more focused fantasy, horror, sci-fi selections in ranking review. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of a clip show, but it'll be new to the ears of Rank and Review listeners, and hopefully will be a nice introduction to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, which you should probably consider listening to if you enjoy Dupre's reviews, which you should. This episode, you are going to be listening to six reviews, including The Contender, Bull Durham, Audrey Rose... The Place Beyond the Pines, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and The Fabulous Baker Boys. As usual, you should uh, contend with my tendency for coarse language and spoilers for the movies being discussed, and you can send your feedback to rankreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much for your ears. Do tell a friend about Rank and Review. And let's get into this shelf-shedding movie, Rank and Review. War is the natural extension of politics. Now, in this war, there, there will be casualties. So help me God. Not among us. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you... Vice President-designate Lane Hansen. The president today has nominated Senator Lane Hansen to fill the vacancy left by the death of the vice president almost three weeks ago. It's the job of you two to make sure that that confirmation gets through. I'm not confirming a woman just because she's a woman. Runyon is going to come after me with all guns blazing. Can we ask for basic fairness? Of course you can. And we do have it confirmed that it's her. It's like some meta hustler. Ryan has been looking for stuff that the feds wouldn't even touch. She was putting on a sex show. And all you can claim about me is that I had sex while deviant I was... Deviant sex. Who says it was deviant? I do. 
we all have to understand we're going to obliterate a life. And what I say, the American people will believe. And you know why? Because I'll have a very big microphone in front of me. You were involved in trading favors with several partners. They got witnesses. She was very drunk when she had sex with my friends. So you're asking me to step down? No, it's not going to be that easy for you, and it's not going to be that easy for them. What have you got on a distinguished gentleman from Illinois? SEC investigation, 1985. You got stocks? I want something embarrassing! Have you ever committed adultery? No. He's got the world thinking you're something out of a bad soap opera. You understand that you are under oath? Yes. I understand that between the two of us, I'm the one that's under oath. All right. One thing I, I know about you is that you stopped watching the Academy Awards. Uh, I believe it was after the uh, year 2000. It was when, the year Julia Roberts won. Yeah. Julia Roberts won for Aaron Brockovich. I know you, you felt that Aaron, uh, Ellen Bernson should have won for Requiem for a Dream. It was a pretty good year for female leads. And right. in the mix was Joan Allen for The Contender. I unfortunately see a lot of parallels to this movie, which is now 20 years old, to the world we're in now. Jeff Bridges is the president of the United States, and his vice president has died. There's kind of this obvious person to to take the job, played by William Peterson. And he wants it bad. He wants it bad, but instead, Bridges chooses Joan Allen. The controversial choice. The controversial choice... Because uh, maybe somebody who doesn't have as much experience and is female. Imagine that. A woman? A woman. In politics? Yes. But, uh, (laughs) interestingly enough, from the get-go, there is talk about how she speaks, how she dresses, uh, how she presents herself. Does that sound familiar, (laughs) Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Um, Or... Pretty much any woman who tries to run for a higher office or gets into a position of power. And then there is a, a bit of a rumored sex scandal of uh, this orgy that she was involved with during her college years. That much hay is being made of. Yeah. And much is being made of uh, because of uh, Gary Oldman's character, who is uh, a Republican. They use Democrat and Republican in this. Uh, who is the head of the confirmation hearing for Joan Allen's character uh, to be, uh, Lane Hansen's the name of the character, by the way, to uh, uh, be confirmed as the vice president of the United States. And as much as this is a Jeff Bridges episode, and this is one of his Oscar nominations, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this, and Joan Allen is fabulous, don't get me wrong in this, but uh, Gary Oldman (laughs) is... Brilliant. Now, I maybe have a weakness. We've talked about Hannibal on your show. I might have a weakness for Gary Oldman because, to me, he's a chameleon. Yeah. He, if Gary Oldman was here, he could play me better than I could play myself. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a weird thing when, especially when people use all of Hollywood's technology to like, transform themselves with the makeup and computer mm-hmm. effects. We, we're, we're getting into this really uncanny age and, with the Irishman and stuff like yes. this. where. Uh, so sometimes I, I feel like these transformative roles can be just knock you over, but, uh, is it just the makeup? Is it, you know, what's the movie where, uh, Nicole Kidman had that ridge yeah, added to her nose? Like, hours, yeah. was it all about the ridge on her nose? Is that why that performance was brilliant all of a sudden? Like it, it, it 
in one hand it's really impressive and on the other hand you almost can the makeup can do the work for you the actor can almost mm-hmm. be usurped by the makeup I'm not going to accuse this of happening to Gary Oldman by the way I'm just I saying this so. is something that can happen no. I mean, uh, he, I, with lesser actors I think that Jeff Bridges has a, a really fun really uh, charismatic role mm-hmm. I guess uh, I would respectfully disagree with you as far as it reflecting the modern era I, I mean I guess it was a it was looking into the future because inevitably this was going to happen sooner or later. Like, there was going to be a female vice president or a president, hopefully. Well, like, still, inevitably, inevitably that that day will come. Yeah. So it's forward thinking in that way, but it suffers, I think, and this is not a like it's not a little complaint that's going to sink the ship at all. But from the same sort of fallacy that like the West Wing. Or that Rob Reiner, uh, an American president thing. Mm-hmm. This idealized idea of the fundamental goodness, fundamental capableness, and fundamental intelligence of everybody who's working in high-ranking positions in the White House. We would all love to believe that this is how it was, but it's just not true. It is an epic fantasy compared to where we're at like yes. to like just to say that this is a fair reflection of today no no the people running things are far stupider than are being than presented the characters in, this. in this movie but there was a time i think where there were smarter people but the romanticism the of the white house that hollywood always does yeah. is it doesn't work for me generally the reason it works for me in this movie is because it's tightly wound screenplay. And it's just yeah. wall-to-wall great character mm-hmm. actors. Sam Elliott, you got some Canadian content with um, Saul Rubinek. Yeah. Uh, Christian Slater, for some reason, always makes me smile to see there, Christian Slater some, show up. You always know it's Christian Slater, but you're having a good time. No, but it's, it's, it's yeah. weirdly nice to see Christian Slater, yeah. you know. Uh, and I, I think that William Peterson has a particularly interesting supporting role in this, uh, mm-hmm. sort of like his, uh, a not obvious villain, but a not obvious, obvious well, villain. Well, and it's, it's based a bit on, on Ted E. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. They even reference it, uh, Chappaquiddick, right. but the, everything that happens around it when, when it gets revealed is, uh, it, it's really insidious, actually, what... Uh, it presents itself as a real-world thriller, but I don't buy it as a real-world thriller. I buy it as an entertaining Hollywood thriller. Okay. So, I mean, I wouldn't give it five-star treatment, but maybe three, three and a half. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I, I think I was blown away by it when I saw it in theaters, and I, I recognize a few chinks in the armor now. Right. I'm not sure I agree with you that it's as positive a portrayal that everybody's a hero was working in the White House. There is, like, the Sam Elliott character, and it's kind of against type in some ways. Like, he's always kind of the, the, the cowboy or whatever. He's the, the high-level Washington insider. Chief of staff. And, yeah, yeah, chief of staff. And he is incredibly mean to Lane from the beginning and is, you know, is cursing a blue streak. And he he's very much projecting the same sexism onto her that, you know, the, the enemy, the Gary Oldman's camp. If you can't is. handle it from me, how are you going to handle it from them? And that's the idea. But he also, there's a, a really important scene early on where Oldman says to him, uh, are you telling me that Lane Hansen was your choice for vice president? And Elliot holds a smile a little bit too long. Yeah. Says, absolutely. Yeah. Choice. And the subtext is, 
completely disagree with the president on this one. Right. This is a terrible well, idea. He sees this as being a whole laundry list of problems, and the president, Jeff Bridges, sees it as, well, it's historic, and uh, I'm going to do something good. And he legitimately likes Lane and thinks she's right for the mm-hmm. job. Uh, and maybe initially doesn't realize the hornet's nest that he's opening up to. But even the evil Republicans in this, even though it's all basically about character assassination and they're not mm-hmm. super, super fussed about what the facts actually are, just the perception, mm-hmm. still, that's tame by comparison to like real-world politics now. Like The fact of something even being true or not is never even entering the debate <laughs> anymore. There's no scruples left. Yeah. Like You feel like there's, they're, they're playing by a rule book. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're they're playing sketchy and they're playing as dirty as they can, but there's still a rule. <laughs> I think the thing here was, and of course, there's a bit of a, a reference to Bill Clinton in there, but this was shot at the time where Bill Clinton was still the president. Okay, like it was, it came out the year of the Bush Gore stuff, right. where I think there was a real turning point in American politics, and that's where in the last twenty years we have got to now. I think before that, even though there were, Clinton had his critics, uh, there was this thing when, when George H.W. Bush died, they said that this will be the last president who was kind of respected by people, even if he disagreed with them. Right. Um, but I feel like there was still this belief in there that, you know, there were intelligent people kind of running the ship. And, and so we're kind of projecting 2020 onto this, onto this movie. That's where very it might have still been a little bit more of an innocent time. In the belief system, but I'm, I'm not sure they're painted. West Wing paints everybody in the White House as, while they disagree, they're kind of all heroes. Almost I, saintly, really. <laughs> almost saintly, particularly with the president. Jeff Bridges is not a terribly nice guy. He's a shrewd politician. Um, there's this great thing every scene he's ordering food mm-hmm. and he's trying to stump the White House kitchen. Like he comes up with bizarre stuff. There's a great, the great scene with Christian Slater, he, this shark meat sandwich. You know, and the whole thing is that he's taking a bite out of this kid who thinks that he's... He's a shark. Yeah. yeah. He's, the reason he does this is Christian Slater's a member of the same party, but is lining up with Gary Oldman so that he doesn't look you know, like he's partisan or whatever, and trying to also improve his... Position. His, his positioning here. He isn't a... He's a manipulative character as well. He's going to do whatever... He's playing politics, but he's playing politics against his party. Yeah. Which he's going to be punished for. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, I, I, I partially uh, agree with it. I, I think the acting and the screenplay are terrific. This is Rod Lurie, who was a movie critic. Uh, and this, uh, I believe, was his first film. Not much has happened since. There's a movie called, I believe, The Last Castle, which I didn't right. see with Robert Redford and James Gandolfini. And I haven't heard of a lot from him since then. And I, I thought this was an amazing debut, and I was excited that this this might be... It's far a from a young future filmmaker. Like, with the exception of the Coen Brothers movies, I feel like I'm going to be playing devil's advocate on all these movies. Like, yeah. it's easy for me to pull threads on the stuff that doesn't work. Wall to wall, the movie does work. Yes. Like, the cast is on point, mm-hmm. And, like, they got everybody... No, Nobody sticks out badly. Everybody, like, everybody does their part well. Like, um, 
and uh, the movie moves while you're while I'm in it. While I was watching it, I was actually of the movies that we talked about that I don't have on my shelf. This mm-hmm. is the one that like, I kind of was jealous. That I wish this should this should be on my shelf. Mm-hmm. My wife would like this movie. I think she could, yes, like, I you think... know, like I could I could talk her into watching that very easily, and I'd have no problem watching yeah. it again. So like, uh, of course, it's a Hollywood thriller. So of course, it doesn't doesn't reflect the real world but it's one of those things where it sort of pretends like it does i recently reviewed a movie from a podcast called the uh, brawl on Cellbrook 99 is that rank and review your podcast but rank and review yes. podcast yeah. but like it's not set in the real world and the deeper into the movie you get the more obvious that becomes yeah. and because of how crazy things get i kind of appreciate that they sort of distance themselves from an actual prison mm-hmm. this is a gothic fairy tale vengeance prison this isn't a real prison right yeah. uh and so i kind of i like it when they play that way yeah. playing it straight in a political thriller is the way to go you can't pretend it's a world that's different than yeah. it is and you're right the world of 20 years ago it was amazingly significantly less corrupt <laughs> than the world <laughs> that we have today but it's uh, still corrupt but not still to not level. not to this level yeah. it's a we're in a different Things have changed and not for the better. So um, maybe I'm carrying too much baggage for it. But as a basic thriller, yes, absolutely. I endorse The Contender. I didn't yeah. mean to come out like vicious of it. I, I love The West Wing in, in its own way. Like the whole Aaron Sorkin. Like, oh, it's, it's like it's what we want the, the, it to be. But mm-hmm. you just don't believe it. Just always yeah. remind yourself that this is fantasy. It, it is a fantasy. <laughs> it's a, for several seasons... And yeah, I can get behind that. I, I've, I've really been, I feel like I've been defending this film right. a little bit. And I haven't been all that critical for me. And maybe you disagree with me on this one. And it really is kind of one of Jeff Bridges' for your consideration moments. There's a giant speech that he gives yep. in an improbable situation that he would gather all the houses together for something other than the State of the Union address. And he, he goes there and... Gives them a talking to. And gives them a talking to. That's right. I didn't buy that for a second. No, it's I don't, not I don't care who the president is. I don't care if it's Abraham Lincoln. That would never happen. And it's the end of the movie. It's kind of an important idea. And we have this, you know, not to ruin the end of it, but there's this kind of hurrah, almost 80s sitcom type of uh, freeze frame end there. And then we go to the credits. And it's kind of an unfortunate way to end what I thought was quite a, quite a sharp film. Right. It's the scene in like the lame courtroom drama where the defendant insists on taking the stand despite yes. the lawyer telling them not to because <laughs> it opens you up to cross-examination and all sorts of other legal mm-hmm, problems. Mm-hmm. It's so much better if you let your lawyer speak for you, but they got to get that person up on the stand to give their impassioned speech. It's like this, this dramatic dare that no writer can <laughs> resist for some reason. And, uh, it almost never works. It's the no. end of Scent of a Woman. It's like, just like, well, I, don't uh, fucking do it. <laughs> I've got such a sentimental attachment that's another one to Scent of a Woman, but well, I it would didn't say, bother me as much as Scent of a Woman as it... If as I was the here. editor of that film, I would take a flamethrower to that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I would burn that scene out of the movie, uh, personally, but... Uh, I'm sorry, but we were talking about the contenders. Yeah, the contenders. Yeah, but but it is that kind of a moment. It, for that's sure. what I, I, mean. I agree. It, it is comparable. I yeah. understand that, and so one one of those works better for me than the other. I just took a, I just I just hit you in the feelings with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's where my love of Al Pacino came from. 
<laughs> you know how much I like Al Pacino. You love you some Al Pacino. I mean, he's not Tom Cruise, but <laughs> I'm just picking a fight now. I'm just picking a fight. Well, we're about to get into the Big Lebowski, so it's time to get ready to fight. Okay. What do you believe in then? Well, I believe in the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last for three days. Oh my. Who are you? I'm the player to be named later. I love winning, man. You hear what I'm saying? It's like better than losing. These are the ground rules. I hook up with one guy a season. It usually takes a couple weeks to pick the guy. Kind of my own spring trainer. It's cold in here. You think Dwight Gooden leaves his socks on? Sucker teed off in that like he knew I was gonna throw a fastball. He did know. I told him. Honey, I want you to wear these when you're pitching on the road. They're garters. Rose goes in the front, big guy. Love is a lot like baseball. It's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. No problem, no problem, baby, no problem. Kevin Costner. Get a hit, Crash. Shut up. Susan Sarandon. Have you ever been tied up in bed? Tim Robbins. I'm too old for this. Bull Durham. I had a Kevin Costner episode, uh, and I talked about Field of Dreams, and I talked about this marriage of I'm a huge baseball fan. So baseball and movies together are usually a winner for me. It was interesting because I got pretty hard on Field of Dreams in my review. Revisiting it, I saw more problems than I think I saw when when I when I first it's watched. Sentimental. Yeah, sorry, it's pretty um, sentimental. Pretty sentimental uh, movie, and sometimes some things just simply don't make sense in the climax, even though it was. Best Picture nominated film. Bull Durham is is one that I didn't have as much of a love for when I was younger. I think I didn't necessarily understand it as much. Uh, maybe because it was a little bit more, huh, you say, more of a realistic look at baseball players who were my heroes at the time, and it kind of brings them down to earth a little bit in some places. So maybe my first, maybe I was a little bit too young to see it the first time I saw it, and this time I was thinking, okay. Where am I at with this? Is this going to be one that's that's aged poorly and I'm going to be going back kind of like the Field of Dreams review and saying, well, it's it, it's a very respected film, but I, you know, I, I don't like it as much as I used to. Uh, and it's trying hard to be as critical as possible. But watching Bull Durham, I still really, really enjoy this movie. And I think I now at a point where I like it quite a bit more than Field of Dreams. And it's just growing up and, and now being in my 40s watching this movie as opposed to being 12 years old and seeing those movies just kind of a different time of life i think the success of bull durham can be attributed to a few folks but uh, the main person i would give credit to is ron shelton who a uh, writer director has specialized a lot in sports films i'd say his two most famous movies are bull durham and white men can't jump and no, he was a minor league baseball. you don't count sorry? tim cup in there at all uh, i'm sorry i like tim cup a lot i just don't think a lot of people remember tim tin cup as much as they remember these other ones so so yeah. I like it enough. I, 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 I like it quite a bit. Somehow it's a less edgy movie than than the other two. Like the satire is less strong. Ron Shelton was actually a minor league baseball player and kind of in some weird way, like Cameron Crowe doing with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He wrote about something that he knew for this film. And the, like the whole tagline on it is the two uh, biggest
greatest pastimes in America are baseball and sex, and this movie combined both. If I was to give some credit, this was uh, a big role for Tim Robbins, kind of announced his presence as a very important actor. Uh, I don't think I appreciated what he was doing in this movie as much when I first saw it as I do now. Big props to Susan Sarandon, and I am a Kevin Costner defender here, so I think that's where we're going to get into uh, different territory here. I think he's very good in Westerns. He's very good when he in these sports movies where he plays these athletes or these over-the-hill athletes. He plays Crash Davis, who's brought in as this kind of uh, last days of his baseball career for this minor league team, the Durham Bulls, to work with this talented but out-of-control pitcher played by Tim Robbins, who just has this powerful arm but doesn't know how to control it, is throwing the ball all over the place. And Susan Sarandon complicates things because she is this this of the baseball team in this small town and she chooses one player to be her project every year and pretty much moves in moves this young man in teaches him life lessons but also starts a one season sexual relationship and she is between the two men she chooses Tim Robbins because Costner as Crush Davis he's, he's like it's between us like uh, if if it's between us you have no taste and I'm taking myself out of this also and, I don't think you're underplaying what an asshole the Tim Robbins character really he is. is he is a giant it would be to, to have someone select like tell you that they chose this guy over you would be considered a slap in the face. Yeah. I don't think that's a character weakness. I think no. I think that would be a fair response. It, it is because Crash Davis is an educated, well-rounded person who's seen it all. Like he and he is a more natural match for Susan Sarandon's character as the arc of the film uh, goes. I, I think because it isn't terribly sentimental, it is solidly an R-rated comedy and. And it has three really strong performances and a few other interesting uh, characters. Uh, it it works really well as a well-rounded movie. I'm not sure it's like a ha 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 every uh, every five minutes like Vacation is, or even to a certain degree Raising Arizona. But I, I think it's a it's a very strong movie, and it's almost an anti-romantic comedy. It still has the tropes of a romantic comedy, and it has the tropes of a baseball or a baseball or a sports film. The way that things work out, it doesn't, it isn't like, you know, this is our tough season and it comes up to like uh, the final game with some underdog team, like you would see in a cliche-ish sports movie. And the way that the love story is handled is handled quite differently than you would see in the traditional rom-com. So I think he found a way to kind of deconstruct those, put them together in an effective way. And it was a strong film for 1988, but I'm happy to hear your opinion, which might be <laughs> mine <laughs> well look i don't know if i've been making a, a frowny face but like <laughs> you have a couple things helping you to get through bull durham yeah you love baseball and you're a big kevin costner fan yeah i do not love baseball and kevin costner i find frustrating i'm not going to sit here and tell you that kevin costner sucks but I will say for every great performance he's given, he's given three completely dead-eyed, not-there performances, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he seems more invested in this movie because he's got sort of a character to play. But when it when it came out, I remember this being the movie that everybody liked more than I did. And, and I think I agree with you. I was a little bit young for it. It skewed much more adult, so it didn't have the same wacky appeal of something as broad as a vacation movie would. Yeah. It was a little bit over my head. So maybe I attributed to that. So when I revisit it, I thought, I'm going to like it more. And I liked it less. It went from okay to fine. It went from okay to fine, as far as I'm concerned. But again, I don't have the fascination with baseball. And I connect to 
zero of the three characters. I could tell you that they were good performances, but one at a time. The Kevin Costner character spends his life playing baseball. It may not be the pro game that he wants to do, but he makes a living playing a game that he loves. And he's Kevin Costner. He's going to get laid. He's going to have a baseline sort of okay. He's going to be fine. He doesn't have any huge mountain to climb other than he used to be a contender and he isn't anymore. Susan Sarandon, as much as it's a great performance and she's a, quote, powerful character and she's making her own decisions, is dedicating her life to making men's lives better. A different mm -hmm. one every year, but that's who she is. She's Penny Lane taken to a ridiculous degree. Yeah. And I can only get away with Penny Lane once. And that movie was almost famous. So I like Susan Sarandon, but I somewhere, I don't know if it's not even credible. I'm sure there are fans who are like this, but I don't know that this is something to necessarily be celebrated as far as I'm concerned, or that maybe, maybe we should be more, if not critical of her, maybe she should be more aware of herself. Like, if you know every year you're going to have a different boyfriend, you have no long-term plans, right? Maybe, maybe she's got some flaws, you know? I think at the time it was just a strong, free-thinking character. And then we have Tim Robbins, who I agree. I think he gives my favorite performance because it's the most fun performance of the three. Mm -hmm. But it seems like he was born with this great arm. He's inherently talented and he takes it for granted. Yeah. And he's shitty to everybody, no matter how much they try to help him. So between those three characters, I don't have a lot to cheer for, Jason. I just don't. And because I don't care about baseball... And because, like, it's going to be fine for Kevin Costner and he and Susan Sarandon are going to inevitably end up together. I didn't feel any conflict or weight or energy to the movie. I stared at it. There's a couple of funny lines. There's a couple of good character beats. And I get why this excited people about Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. This was about when they were about to make their meteoric rise through Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And they earned that with this movie. Yeah. But Ron Shelton will do the same movie over and over and over again based on the success of Bull Durham. And if you ask me, he specializes in sports movies about unlikable characters. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. I, 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 you're not wrong. And I think you're describing my initial reaction when I was whatever I remember I because I was a baseball fan and I traveled to Montreal to see the Expos with my uncle and we were staying at his uh I think it was his sister's place in Montreal and they had a VHS copy of Bull Durham and like oh you're like a baseball fan let's watch this but they'd kind of forgotten about some some of the sex, sex stuff in there and I, I I didn't get the whole picture because I think they started doing the adult thing of fast forwarding you know this is inappropriate <laughs> Kid in the room type of thing and it was later I, I saw the the whole arc of the film but what struck me about it is at a time when I, I saw people like Costner would always play a hero role and all these baseball players I was enamored with and saw them as as gods right this movie brought them down to earth as human beings and in some cases very arrogant human beings sometimes they're about themselves spoiled entitled human beings <laughs> and entitled as well because especially with Tim Robbins that he's been given this gift and he doesn't appreciate it uh, so I, I, I've never completely liked his character as much I guess maybe maybe I I do cling a little bit I like Costner and I like that this is not you know this is the you know the, the crazy dad in Field of Dreams or or he's the hero of the film or something like that as, as much that this was a, a bit of a darker character for him to play and a little bit more unsettled I, I think I the Sarandon I think gives the best performance of the three and in 1980 now it looks bad in the way you're describing it and 
Susan Sarandon's been a lifelong feminist. I, I I know that. I think what she was attracted to with this role is who who is the one who has the power? Who is the sexual aggressor? Who controls it? Like Tim Robbins wants to have sex and she she ties him up and he thinks it's going to be some really amazing sexy thing and then she starts to read poetry to him and start talking about these big ideas that he's too too dumb to understand. There, there's something brilliant about that which I don't think was being explored at that time in uh, in Hollywood in the 1980s. If I'm coming off like some social justice warrior bullshit, this is not what I'm really doing. I don't care. I, I get what they're going for. I just, I, I see a lot of flaws and a, a person who really would act this way, who would so dedicate themselves to other people and a new person every year. I would sort yeah. of think there was something within them that was needing looked at that would need to be acknowledged here. Uh, this seems to be a heroic part of her personality and uh, it makes her strong but it also I think I think it would be even stronger to show that maybe there's something vulnerable about this I, I think but I, I do think that she is kind of a, a sad character I, I don't think she's somebody who has it all together or the film is trying to show that and in particular when she's not getting her way because it, it really is a battle for uh, the Tim Robbins character who's influencing him Crash Davis who's saying like when you're playing baseball when you're hot you you can't have sex. You can't be thinking about women or, or any of that stuff. That's gonna get in your head and that's gonna screw you up. And and uh, and he starts listening to Crash more. And and she she's just having no luck influencing these men. And she's always had this power. And then she's just what's my identity anymore? She's stuck at a bit of this crisis point. Uh, I think like towards the end of the movie. And it's I don't think it's very it's Pollyanna. I'm making it sound a little bit Pollyanna. Mm -hmm. But Crash is retired from baseball. She's retiring from uh, being the Penny Lane, as you described of this uh, Durham Bulls team and they really kind of found each other and they're better suited to each other than anything else and that she's not going to be doing this anymore that they're going to now carry on with their lives seems like the movie doesn't even pretend there's conflict in that it's like this is her one last hurrah before she settles down with Kevin Costner <laughs> you know what I mean and it's something coldly calculated about that I think Ron Shelton does, I, I get why people appreciate it because it's more layered and nuanced than sort of like a crowd-pleasing yeah. sports movie like Hoosiers. It, it yeah. might have its appeal, but it's also, you know, pretty contrived in a lot of ways. And he seems to consciously avoid that. But I think he arguably overcorrects a lot of the time. I think I would have liked White Men Can't Jump a lot more if I liked Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes' characters a lot yeah. more. They were so shitty to each other that I ended up not liking either of them by the end of the movie. And whether or not that was the point of the exercise, it made me like the movie a little bit less. And I don't know if that's a comment on, on male relationships in the sports environment where they, are, they yeah. do talk that way to each other and talk each other down and smack talk. I, I don't, I'm, not like, I'm not an athlete in any way, shape, or form. I'm an appreciator of baseball mostly i will watch sports but i you know i'm not uh i'm not an athlete i i've never understood that mentality but i think he's trying Movies have always been my sports i've been bullied by too many jocks to to really even pretend to like sports yeah. and like uh i i just it's not my thing and, and i will take that like that that's a knock against it and uh, i've always been mystified by the popularity like i said of, of costner you, I was listening to your podcast earlier today. You were talking about uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and I was like, I remember that. That was the big selling point of the movie. Not Alan Rickman, not the you know that they're doing a nouveau Robin Hood. Yeah. Kevin Costner. And watching that movie today, he is the worst thing about that movie, as far as I'm concerned. Like yeah. it's brutal. And like 
He made Dances with Wolves a Best Picture winner, which is like already so, you know, it's it should have been the last of the great white savior movies. Unfortunately, Avatar exists. Uh, and then every now and then I'll be shocked. Like I'll watch JFK or uh, Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World and I'll think, yeah. Jesus, this guy's awesome. What happened? <laughs> so I have this like frustration with Kevin Costner. And there are scenes in this movie in Bull Durham where he lights up. But it's not it's not completely there for me. It's an it's it's a it's an easy role for him. He's just a, a guy who everything has more or less worked out for, and everything is going to continue more or less working out for. But he he much like Susan Sarandon has a bit of an empty existence. I mean that's all. He's not as happy as he should be considering. No, he's. I mean, not everybody gets to play professional baseball for the better part of their adult lives, and and he yeah he's he's just kind of a miserable person. But that's all he has in his life. And some uh, people spend their life dreaming of playing in the pros and never do it he did yeah, it he did it and he gets his home run record and and all of that but uh but yeah I, I, I and i just feel like ron shelton's aware of the bullying nature of jocks and so this is kind of showing people the flaws very flawed human beings and they are sometimes miserable human beings and maybe we shouldn't be celebrating them and treating them like gods because they are this is how they act and maybe that's why his protagonists are kind of unlikable people but uh i think he just overpours i think especially in a rom-com environment at least with these movies that advertise themselves to be the sweet and the sour needs to be balanced and the reason i brought up tin cup is that to me is the movie where it happened yeah he, that's a you're right that's a sweeter movie maybe there's, there's something harsh about them there's something that's so ugly about his characters that it's hard to cheer for them and so the the payoff isn't as as strong to me and I, the only thing I maybe care less about than baseball is fucking golf, dude. <laughs> and Tin Cup about golf. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing that I even watched that movie, really. And, yeah. and even then, I'm not enthusiastic. This isn't me pounding my stick saying, see Tin Cup. But people still talk about White Man Can't Jump and Bull Durham. And like for me, I think that Tin Cup is the better of those movies. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm coming off as the negative Nelly in this, this, this review. I think you're playing point to the good factism. There's good acting in it. It's a well intentioned warm movie it's largely not for me jason i think might be a large part of the problem this is not for me ergo I, it didn't connect with me ergo it's not going to rank particularly high i know it's not ranking review but you know what i mean yeah <laughs> I, that, yeah. I, I just to again out of fairness uh i, I do want to mention some things that i saw as weaknesses i, I mentioned that you know I, I think that tim robbins character he's a bit of a clown and he's an unlikable clown as we as we said works for the comedy but i'm not sure it works for me cheering for him moving into his major league career later in the film we should be able to like him at least a little bit i don't know you know again 1988 there's some pretty homophobic remarks in in the film the script but in keeping with jock culture i think that's appropriate almost it's real yeah uh I and mean, uh, i'm not endorsing it but that's how they would talk and you are also right i mean i don't think there's any doubt that when you have at that time robbins wasn't a known commodity but Costner was, Sarandon was, that they are the leads and they are likely going to end up together at the end of the film in some way, shape or form, which that part feels a bit formulaic. It, it would have been interesting if they had gone their separate ways and that was just the end of the film, but. Wouldn't it? Imagine like she spent her life calling people on her shit, on their shit. Like yeah. honestly, I would have been so impressed if she came to run to his arms at the end of this movie and he sent her packing. <laughs> That's how much that wasn't working for me. 
Yeah, that would have been a, I think, a more interesting ending to the film. So right. it's not about its flaws, but I, I know why I, I like this movie a lot more than you do. But as you said, it was probably more for me than it was for you. Agreed. The mother, the father, the child, the stranger. He's going to harm us. It's Ivy. He's after. The past, the present, the nightmare. <laughs> The terror. I saw her burn her hands on a cold window. The movie. Audrey Rose, the novel of reincarnation, is now a spellbinding motion picture. The pain, the anger, the trial, the test. Your eyelids are getting so heavy. The question. Audrey. The answer. Never the child! The torment. <laughs> the truth. We're both a part of this child. It will alter your ideas about life after death forever. I feel like I've told you this story before that I, I, I went through some phase of my, I don't know, childhood or if it was maybe even it was like early teens where, and I've never been great at getting to sleep at night. And at midnight, CTV would play these movies and they would go for movies that were 15, 20 years old in kind of the 90s or the 80s. And just one night, this movie came on called Aubrey Rose. I didn't know anything about it. And there were some parts in it that just freaked me right out where I was like, I actually had a reaction where I was scared almost to the level of something like watching The Exorcist. It was the 19, 1970s and there were a lot of movies about where children were at the kind of the center of the film and actually being asked to do some fairly tough things uh, in, in the movies they were in. And Audrey Rose does have a, it's directed by Robert Wise, terrific director. He, he did The Haunting, of course, and, and it has a pretty good cast. Again, before a lot of people were paying that much attention to Anthony Hopkins, he was in a movie called Magic that we both quite like, or a movie in the, in the, the uh, late 70s. And he's the lead actor in this, as well as Marsha Mason. And Marsha Mason is... Uh, She's very good. Yeah, she's a um, her body of work in in so many different roles has been great. She's a to me at the time she would have been kind of like comparable to like a Meryl Streep type of a person or a Glenn Close who would of of that generation. She would have been in. She got a lot of work in the seventies, and so her and her husband are finding themselves stalked by this really strange seeming British man played by Hopkins who has taken an unusual interest in their daughter and it's New York City and they're like, there are a lot of creeps out there. What's going on? And we start to find out that this man has had much tragedy in his life where he, there was a car accident where he lost his wife and his daughter. And through talking to some psychics and some spiritual people over the years, he has been convinced that the death is not the end and that his daughter would have been reincarnated and he has traced it back and believes that his daughter named Audrey Rose has been reincarnated as uh, the daughter of this couple. 
and they found that there's night terrors that this this uh, young girl has, and she has these dreams, and a lot of them revolve around her feeling like she's on fire, and they can't really explain it, and they're looking at psychologists, and that, again, very much like Regan and the Exorcist trying to explain scientifically something which seems to be connected to the supernatural. I, again, maybe this is one where not a lot of people remember this movie and I want people to check it out and form their own opinions, but I, I maybe have, a, I recognize the flaws, but I have a bit of a soft spot for Audrey Rose. I even revisiting it, I thought, okay, there's a difference between watching it when I'm younger at midnight and being a little bit more imaginative and susceptible, but in my forties watching this, yeah, it didn't scare me as much this time, but I think it's it's an interesting story that has potential, yet there are some cringeworthy moments and some things that, that haven't aged that well, that are very 1970s. The pace, in particular, is very 1970s. And I think there's kind of a sequence that kind of, in the third act, where we get into a court drama, which... Again, doesn't seem to make sense to me that we would get to that place as much as this is supposedly based on a true story. So, so all that to say, I like Audrey Rose, but um, I'm interested in your opinion on it. Well, it's based off of a novel. Maybe that novel was based off, supposedly based off of a true story. Supposedly based off, yeah. <laughs> I think you kind of nailed it when you said it's very 70s. And I'm not just talking about the aesthetic of like, you know, the, the, the print of the film or the style of the clothes or its willingness to take its time. In fact, those are all things that I value in a horror movie. Yeah. This sort of period of movies, when they're like The Shining, The Changeling, The Entity, those really get under your skin horror movies really do work for me. I would put Audrey Rose much to the lesser of that stack of movies that I just listed here. But Robert Wise, like this is not a B-list director, okay? This yep. is an A-list director. Didn't he do... Well, he did The Haunting, and he did a famous musical that I believe... is it Was it uh, West Side Story? Yeah, West Side Story. Am I, am he, making the, he directed The Sound of Music as well. Sound of right. Music. He did Star Trek, the motion picture. But, yeah. like, uh, as... This was later on in his career, and I think in the 70s especially, because it was such an auteur decade, there was a weird competition going on. Like, Kubrick made the shining because he felt like he was being outpaced in the horror genre by people like uh you know the guy to the exorcist uh my, my, uh, my brain Freakin. just went empty Freakin. yeah you know uh, and so it was always part of the zeitgeist and at this time everyone was trying to make the next exorcist and that's what this movie is it was a popular novel uh, Reincarnation was in. There's another movie that came out right around the same time as this called The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. That huge zeitgeist water cooler movie, just like this one. At the time, this was a big conversation piece and everybody was talking about it. But within a few months, maybe a year or two, they were all forgotten about except for The Exorcist and The Shine, yeah. right? And Audrey Rose was among them. And I think that makes sense. I do. I think Robert Wise is maybe getting to the point in his career where he didn't have anything else to prove, and uh, maybe he'd made all of the movies that he really passionately wanted to make. He wasn't going to make a better horror movie than The Haunting, because that's just a fan-fucking-tastic horror yeah. movie. And he wasn't well-suited, let's say, to uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I believe I said on my podcast I can only recommend as a sleep aid. <laughs> so this is more, you know, this is closer yeah. to his... Zone as far as you know, Weiss can totally handle this material, 
But I yeah. feel it's less about him being passionate about his this material and more about this is the movie that's popular right now. This is what mm -hmm. the people want to see. This is my Exorcist. Yeah, it's just swamped by other better movies. The Exorcist is clearly a better movie than this. Magic, which you were just talking about, which is another thriller anchored by Anthony Hopkins, just a wall-to-wall -wall better executed movie than now, is this a bad movie going around the long way? No, it's fine. It's fine. But with the talent involved, Robert Wise, Anthony Hopkins, best-selling novel, zeitgeist moment movie, I don't know that it's all that. I think it's okay. And I think you're dead right that once we get into the legal thing, uh, until we get to the final climax, which is not what you want or expect the movie to give you, which I will give points to, but the actual court case itself is ridiculous and to be frank especially the third time around boring <laughs> so uh like i it's not like the exorcist of emily rose where they they were counterbalancing these two completely different genres in a way that helped or we were seeing two different takes on the story and maybe anthony hopkins was right and maybe he wasn't clearly anthony hopkins is right like the plot point early in the movie is that she burns her hand on a frozen window pane. yes so like what's the explanation to this but I don't know. The, the, the movie falls short for me on, like, I didn't lose sleep over it. I didn't, I guess I didn't see that in that perfect midnight showing sort of place that you did. So it kind of got under my skin. Inevitable that the movie is exactly what you think it is from the very first point. You, you know, Anthony Hopkins' character is acting aggressive and strange, but you don't feel that he means any harm to this girl. And you're right about that. And the story that he tells about reincarnation and the tragedy that happened to him, it would be a hard one to swallow. But at no point does the movie really ask you to doubt it. The only surprise it has is at the very end of the movie. I didn't see that ending coming, yeah. but it's, it was a long walk hard. to get there. In here, I'm kind of all over the place, but I, yeah. I, I want to like the movie more than I do. I think it's one of those things that at the time, it was a really big deal. It's like Lost or something today. Like when everybody was watching Lost on TV and everybody was talking about Lost, and now nobody gives a fuck about Lost anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It was, it had its moment, it's done. Audrey, well, I'm just, maybe that was my example, but Audrey Rose had its moment and it's kind of done. Like yeah. there are zeitgeist movies, even really big ones. I've, I've said things like The Blair Witch Project or Texas Chainsaw Massacre really uh, are helped by seeing them when they came out being yes. part of the moment that the mm -hmm. movie inhabited really sort of justifies the movie in a lot of ways. And the farther away we get from that moment, maybe the less the less sheen the movie has on it. And I feel like that's just the way I feel about Audrey Rose. It had its moment and it was fine, but it, it, we've moved past this. And I'm, I might have a little bit of a weakness for 70s cinema. And there's something about the 70s sure. horror that works for me for some reason more than anything else where I just, maybe it's because I was only in the 70s for a brief time, right? So I didn't get to kind of live in it as much, and I have this image of what it was like, and then to see kind of the, the things that happened in here, I, I just that style, that setting works well for me. But that was one of the moments was, uh, I, again, I, I had this experience. I found the movie on DVD. I was so excited. I bought it sight unseen. And then I, I, I showed it, This I said, this great 70s horror movie that freaked me right out. I showed it to a group of people who ended up laughing at it. And so that was like, oh, right. okay, so this might have been uh, Jason only type of a thing that I'm one of the few that likes it. 
few things I want to shout out. I mentioned Hopkins and, and Marshall Mason. I like Norman Lloyd as that psychiatrist. Sure. The climax of the film when they're trying to hypnotize the girl and try to talk to Audrey Rose. And I, I just think that whole sequence is freaky and it works out well. The lighting, the cinematography. And that's where we're seeing how good Robert Wise is as a director. I think if, if you didn't have a master director like that, and that sequence could have come across as really silly. And it, it was, to me, it wasn't. Uh, what did you think about uh, John Beck? He plays uh, the father, Bill Templeton. I'm sympathetic uh, in some ways. Is It is a tricky character. Like, especially as a parent, you the plot machinations, like, this guy is stalking your daughter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think... He does the job. Like uh, it's hard for me to like. Could I replace that guy with another actor, and maybe it'd be more comfortable? Possibly. I think that obviously there's tension between him and the Hopkins character. I don't know that it's that he's bad. It's just that Anthony Hopkins is so much more interesting, both as a character mm-hmm. and in execution, that he kind of gets washed off the screen to me. A bit. And I think that that conflict. Should, I think that conflict should be much more real. Like. You stay the fuck away from my daughter, right? Like, uh, and uh, as those parents, like, so yeah, that spoilers, I guess. She is Audrey Rose. That is the reincarnation. She does relive the experience of Audrey Rose's death, but this time her daddy's there for her. Great. What about them? They just lost their daughter. Do they now wait for some their daughter to get, or, or was that ever really their daughter? Like, what's yeah. the thesis of the story here? Like, what really happened? Did they ever really have a daughter that was their own? Why is their yeah. tragedy not more of a tragedy than Anthony Hopkins' tragedy? <laughs> And I think theirs is a pretty, yeah, their, their tragedy is pretty brutal as well, too. I mean, like one is awful, sudden, horrible, can't say goodbye type of thing. The other one is they deal with, you know, months and years of ongoing, these night terrors and trying to protect this girl. And then what's the payoff here? I mean, you know, they just said it's, 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 a, it's a really dark story, I, I think, you know, when you kind of look at it as far as the payoff but getting there you said is a bit of a journey i almost wonder for some reason in that role i always think of nick nolte like nick nolte playing that role i think could have really taken hopkins on and like that would could have been maybe it would have been a little yeah. bit too accurate between the two of them going back and forth there but but yeah i, I was just curious i think he does a, a a good job i also like the actor john hillerman small role as one of the lawyers but he was uh, on uh, magnum pi and in movies like yeah. uh, chinatown that was kind of the bright light in that courtroom section is just to see that guy in there. All of these movies that we've done this episode are full of that guy roles, though, aren't they? Yeah, There's a lot of are. people in those guys. That guy. <laughs> Again, I feel like I've been hard on the movies this 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 episode so far. I've been picking on them. Like, Again, I do think it's fine. I just, I, I'm not particularly excited about Audrey Rose. It was yeah. in my collection, and I'm, I'm down for Anthony Hopkins. Like, I do think he, he was always a great actor. It just, no, it, everybody kind of embraced it after Silence of the Lambs, but it wasn't like he was slumming it before this. This was 15 yeah. years before Silence of the Lambs, and he was killing it. He was in The Lion in Winter, which was an Academy Award winning, winning film in the late 60s. So, I mean, and all the theater there stuff that he was doing at that time, too. So, I'd encourage people to make up their own minds on Audrey Rose. Check it out if you can find it. But it's another one that's been lost a little bit, and I just don't want movies to be lost forever. That's the concern, I know, as far as the streaming world and stuff that you've talked about. So, If you're a fan of the slow burn 70s horror movies, or you're a fan of Anthony Hopkins, it's a, it's a safe one. 
Now we look at The Place Beyond the Pines, uh, a film that I saw in theaters, and there's a, again, first time watch for you, so I'm interested to get your take on it. Uh, this Derek Cien France, best uh, uh, attempt at the pronunciation, had worked with Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams on a movie called Blue Valentine. Which I have seen. I, yeah, and I saw it once. I'd like to revisit it. I don't, I think I liked individual scenes between the, the actors, but I think maybe the story kind of got a little bit lost for me on that one. And so obviously we like working with Ryan Gosling because he, you know, put him in this movie. And the big thing is like Ryan Gosling and Brad, Bradley Cooper, two of the hottest young actors in Hollywood are, are in this movie together. Um, yes, we do have Ray Liotta. It was like, and Ray Liotta at yeah. the end of the credits we see. But seeing this in theaters, th there were surprises to be had with this movie. I thought there was going to be a lot of screen time. Spoilers, there isn't. For Ryan Gosling and Bradley Cooper, there's a key moment for sure. And the three-act structure of the movie is kind of interesting. Problem with it, I guess, and I do like it a lot, and I think it's well executed, is we start off with this guy who, uh, you know, he's... Uh, kind of motor racer, and he travels around with like kind of a, a it's like a carny show or something like that. He just races dirt bikes. Yeah, he races these dirt bikes, and you know, in like the I don't I'm not using the technical terms like the ball there, where other people are, and yeah. it's a miracle they don't crash into what each do other. They call those spheres where they yeah. drive around in circles. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Um, and then he comes to this town that he was at probably the year before, uh, and then uh, Ava Mendez shows up in sees the show and and they have this little moment uh, together and then she kind of goes back and says oh no you can't come in but then we discover that in fact like they had had a fling before and he's father to son he's the, yeah yeah father to son i uh, was now being looked after by mahershala ali at the time i saw this i hadn't like i saw the face he was one of those those yeah, guys he wasn't famous yet. yeah he, he hadn't won his two academy awards at that at that point and he's a responsible guy 
but now this is all changed for Ryan Gosling, and he's going to stay in, in this, this town, and he's going to have a relationship with this kid, and he's quit his job, and but then he's struggling to, to get money. Um, then uh, he, he runs into the wonderful actor Ben Mendelsohn. Mendelsohn, and this was actually, I think this was kind of a different role for him. I mean, like, he always plays kind of a, a, a darker, creepy guy here, but he's a guy who, you know, has very, like, he, he lives in this place where works on cars and uh he saw how fast gosling is on his bike uh, and he offers him uh this trailer to stay in and he can do a little little bit of work but he's not earning enough and then he brings up this idea of being robbing banks but being disciplined about it don't do too much every once in a while and that's how you never get caught and and, and he kind of trains him up on that and it gets to this point where he's going to have to be providing some money if he wants to be part of this, his, his, his son's life. And, uh, and then he starts quite successfully and in very good, like these really well, well thought out uh, bank robbery scenes uh, that are quite exciting. Uh, starts to commit these bank robberies and he gets more cash and he's buying, you know, buying things. And he's just trying to win Ava Mendez over and get rid of um, Herschela Ali. But of course... Different circumstances happening happen. There's a bit of a violent streak in this guy, and uh, things kind of go downhill from there. That's the first act of the movie, and it is riveting. It is great filmmaking, well-written, wonderful acting. There is a point where we change perspectives, and Bradley Cooper is, int- is introduced, and we then focus on Bradley Cooper and less on Ryan Gosling. Spoilers, please pause, yeah. watch this movie, and then you know, then re- return to this review. Uh, Ryan Gosling, his character, is no more once we get to the second act. And then we kill, see the story of this yeah. this police officer who uh, you know basically m- murdered Ryan Gosling, but he's told the he story took a round in the leg. He took a round in the leg and he's become this hero. Yeah. Uh, and then we get Ray Liotta, who shows up, and some of his buddies, and they are dirty cops. And they go in and they terrorize Ava Mendez, and they're trying to find this money that Ryan Gosling stole, stole and they're, they're just horrible. Awesome. But we get the charm of Liotta, we get the villain quality, and a little bit of an older Ray Liotta as well. And then we kind of see how Bradley Cooper and his father who is a supreme or is a judge or you know something like that state supreme court or something like that how this leads into uh having a very successful career in politics that story while it's interesting enough is not as interesting as the ryan gosling story then we go to the third act which is years into the future and bradley cooper is trying to become the attorney the attorney general after he's basically betrayed and lied to all of these people. But now we're looking at the next generation and this thing that happens, that happens in the movies where we have Ryan Gosling's son and Bradley Cooper's son meeting each other in, and they're both kind of outsiders in this high school and things go pretty bad. Um, And that's the third act. And as much as like these young actors are, 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 are trying their best, that's the weakest act, I think, of the three. So we kind of get our, our, our first 
say half an hour, 45 minutes is amazing and it's diminishing returns for the rest of the film. Not enough for me to say I my thumb is down, but I really noted this time. I, it was amazing how much I forgot. I saw it in theaters and it's been, this has been a few years too, how much I'd forgotten about this movie. But I, I like it enough and Gosling is so good. Cooper's fine, but Gosling is so good and that opening sequence is so good. I could, I, I can't not recommend this film. I think people should check it out and maybe see the whole three act structure and judge for yourself. But for me, you know, that that's, it's kind of more in between. And I feel like this could have been like up there as one of the best movies we're talking about. Instead, it's a, a better than average film. So that, that's my take on, um, it on feels, the place beyond the pines. It feels, I mean, it's an epic movie. It's, it's long and it's telling a story over two generations. So it is by definition an epic movie. But it does feel, you're right, like three different movies. Like it either wanted to be a miniseries or mm -hmm. like a trilogy. Yes. Because the first act, succinctly by itself, this man discovers he's a father and wants to earn it and yeah. wants to do it, but he makes all of the wrong decisions and it ends tragically. That could be its own completely effective yes. movie. They could have expanded that to a 100-minute movie that would have completely subsisted by itself. It would have been a bummer, but it would have worked. Then you have the second movie about Bradley Cooper and him basically using this this shooting to escalate his career, yeah. but also, you know, dealing with the corruption around him and living with the fact that he killed a dude. And he killed a dude who was a father. Mm -hmm. And, like... And he has this guilt about it, yes. He does. Like, he doesn't feel great about it. No. And it was a pretty clean shoot, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. you could debate it, but, like... Yeah. It was heightened circumstances, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was crooked in what he did, I guess, what, other stuff later on is crooked but later yeah but yeah. i mean the actual mm. shooting itself it's because he shoots gosling and gosling fires the this the round after he's been hit mm -hmm. but he's standing in the window ledge with the gun in his hand they're in hot pursuit he appears in the doorway they're going to shoot at each other yeah bradley cooper fired first ergo he won yeah. so like it, it seemed legit but him that was a shocking moment i mean oh, yeah I did, not, I did not that. expect that when I, I don't know if you did, but no. I did not expect that. I didn't know that. Again, I hadn't seen the movie before, <laughs> and I hadn't really heard much about it. Uh, mm -hmm. So I wasn't expecting Gosling to be killed at all. That was When he first went out the window, I was like, uh, I thought, well, he's going to be, next scene will be in the hospital or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they did the pan shot over, and I'm like, that doesn't look like a hospital. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so then we get to the third movie. <laughs> so, so yes, like, yes. With Dane DeHaan, uh, who's a young actor who I really do like. He was in Chronicle great, yeah. and uh, Cure for Wellness. And, like, yeah, great he's, face. He's been having a really hard time because he keeps getting high-profile roles in movies that take huge bombs in the box. I know, off. I know. So I'm cheering for him. But you're right. Each, subject, each act and each mini-movie is slightly less good than the one that happens before it. I mean, fundamentally, I just, I guess, I agree with you on the structure standpoint. And the movie's got this sort of big ideas, sort mm -hmm. of like, what is your fate? Like, if you are a criminal biker dude, can you stop from being a criminal biker dude? And more than that, if your dad was a criminal biker dude, can you do anything but help <laughs> becoming a criminal biker dude? At the yeah. end of the movie, spoilers, Dane DeHaan buys a motorbike, drops out of school and drives out of town to yeah. basically become his father. And that doesn't suggest a bright future, right? <laughs> Not if he follows the exact same <laughs> path, right. unfortunately. Yeah. But so you got all this fate and fathers and sons and like these sort of big, big ideas. Mm -hmm. 
and I can't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know this director. I don't know what he went on to do, but like, it feels like it was so ambitious that he wanted to fit these three movies into one movie. And that made for a good, interesting, sprawling epic. But I think I agree with you that it might have been better as a trilogy or as a miniseries. Like, if you want to really set into these characters and show us the, the sweep of their lives and, you know, how their choices are their choices, but there's still something inevitable about their fates, all of it basically works. Um, but I think it lands on good instead of great. And it had these mm -hmm. ambitions of being something like truly mind-blowing, I think, you know. Um, and I don't dislike the movie. I, I'll be honest and say that I liked it considerably more than I was expecting. I do feel like, as far as going back to the Ray Liotta conversation, yes. this is the kind of role that Ray Liotta gets mm -hmm. cast in. Like, we need over, it, we over need and it, over again. We yeah. need a corrupt cop. We mm -hmm. need somebody who will be credible both as someone who could be a cop but could get away with shit. This is something that Ray Liotta could do in his sleep. And I don't think he necessarily phones him in, but I, I don't feel like this was a stretch for him by any stretch of the imagination. And no. he really is minor to the plot. He has a small portion in the second mini-movie. Yeah. 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 So it wouldn't have been my choice for a Ray Liotta. Like he was like, the antagonist of the second movie. He was right. the big bad in there. And, I mean, they're, they're, I mean we, we are kind of wondering what's going to happen here because we we start to go into the pines there, and he, he he's driving, and like a, he's following Ray Liotta, into these woods knowing full well what could be happening to him and we've already seen one of our protagonists or characters we're following get Just off suddenly get so yeah. it is possible that okay let's you know get rid of bradley cooper and let's see where we go with the story next it's, that might have been a more interesting idea actually it you is know? true that early death does kind of take the rules out of the equation yeah. so you can feel worried there's for some bradley suspense cooper. in that scene and then i i, I do kind of like how we go back there in the third story. And, I mean, I'm being hard on the third story. I, I work in a high school. I think they actually get a lot of things right about um, certain high school students and how those who are kind of outside of the whatever, they meet each other and, you know, a negative and a negative is not necessarily going to lead to a positive. I uh, we're just so far from where we started by that point, it feels like we're watching a different movie. I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. I go back to where I started. Like, he was so ambitious with this, like, maybe it needed to be a miniseries or a trilogy. Um, or, or who knows, maybe that's not sustainable. I like the ambition of the movie. It, it, I like that they, the, the characters kind of hand the story over uh, every act, right? The first act is all about Ryan Gosling, the yeah. second act is all about Cooper, and the third act is all about their kids. Yeah. I mean, Cooper's still in the third act, but... Yeah, he's still there. I, I, I like the idea of... Uh, and it's, the payoff's kind of interesting. It probably is how it works. Entitled people tend to, you know, win in the end. But the fact that Cooper's kid is a psychopath and uh, just a horrible person, and then Gosling's kid is actually, you know, he's, he's an outsider, he's misunderstood, but he's actually not a bad kid. But it's, he's... It's you know, in him, though. It's it, it's in him, for sure. Yeah, yeah. this director, I mean, after this, like, he did some movie called Cage Fighter um, and The Light Between the Oceans, and he's gone on to TV stuff. So, you know, I think he had kind of two highlights in his career as a, as a director, and I think he was interesting, and I think, you know, screenplay's interesting, and it was an attempt 
to do it. So it's not a it's not a bad movie. Um, if you're a fan of Gosling or you're a fan of Cooper, it's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Uh, it's not a bad movie. It's just, again, it's very ambitious and it might have too much in it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And and Leot is good, though. I mean, he's a welcome presence. He comes in and he has the charm early on. He's coming in and like messing with, you know, Cooper a little bit. And, oh, could we borrow your husband to do some police work tonight? And then, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is bad, really, Leota, that we got in this movie. He's. But again, if I want a moral, morally dubious, you know, cop Ray Liotta, I'm going to go to Narc, or I'm going to go. Yeah, to... I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But, but, and, and again, it's to me, it's the, the the curse of Goodfellas is that he. This is what they would recommend him for. They weren't recommending him for other roles. Like, I mean, it does have a tough guy face, but I, I do, I appreciate the yeah. soft side to Ray Liotta. Yeah, Liotta. well, really he was do. kind of a fresh faced guy in Goodfellas. He wasn't, you know. Yeah. He came to be that character, but he, you know, in Goodfellas, he's not, he's not the heavy. He's the guy we're watching the story through those eyes. And later on, he became the Pesci or the, you know, um, type of a a role there. But uh, he's fine in the movie, but it's not his movie. It's not. And so this, you know, I guess this in Sin City. Yeah. Yeah. We're not Ray Liotta movies as such, but he's interesting in them. He didn't give an uninteresting performance that I can think I of. I can't think off the top of my head of a time where I saw Ray Liotta and thought, this is kind of flat, dude. Like, it probably happened, but I, don't, yeah. I can't think I, of it. I, I have some memory of him being in a really awful movie, like of some comedy or something. It was like, I don't know, one of the like SNL, but I, I, I can't think of it off the yeah. top of my head. But um, even then, I probably would have been like, oh, thank God he's in here for a little bit so I can enjoy a scene or two. So You can relax when he's on screen. Yes, you, you can. I <laughs> I did, uh, you know. But yeah. he's not the reason to watch but, the movie. But he's it, <laughs> always excited when he shows up. So Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. <laughs> Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. <laughs> Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries for their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson, a man with a mission. Oh, gnarly. Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome. Totally awesome. And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on moods should not drive. Times at Ridgemont High. On the show, I've I've talked about Cameron Crowe. Actually, in my first episode, we reviewed the director's cut. Uh, my my guest Sage Dent and I re- reviewed the director's cut of Almost Famous. Famous. The director's cut was a little bit of a slog, I think, but the Almost Famous is a would agree like the theatrical cut's a really exceptional movie. Probably Cameron Crowe's best film. And one, one scene away from perfection, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be. It could be. There are a couple performance things in there that I last time I was a little bit more 
critical of. But before he became a director, writer-director with the movie Say Anything, he was a screenwriter. He wrote for Rolling Stone magazine. And he did uh, this little experiment where he posed as a high school student for a year. And then he wrote a novel about what was going on with high school students at the time, which was the basis for his screenplay of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And uh, then at that point, he... He wasn't greenlit to be the director, but a director I quite like. She hasn't worked a whole lot, to my knowledge, Amy Heckerling. In the 80s, we had Fast Times at Ridgemont High. In the 90s, she made this uh, movie among the many kind of teen comedies at that time called Clueless, which I think has a little bit more to it than uh, than meets the eye. But beyond that, I'm not as sure. I what want she- to say, Jason, I'm not sure of this. I want to say that she did Look Who's Talking. Like, talk- insanely popular talking baby movie in the late 80s yeah. I, I hope I'm not misleading you there <laughs> no, show she was involved with too it looks like here but oh that's absolutely right but yeah very like few and far between with her projects uh, mm-hmm. yeah and this is a cult classic in many ways but going through it this time what I was struck with fast times at Ridgemont High it's a life for a year in, in the life of these high school students but there isn't really much of a story to it at all yeah at all no but it features some of like even to this day some of the most important uh, film actors that we have a cast is of course it was a star making performance for Sean Penn playing uh, Jeff Spicoli and that's where a lot of the advertisement in fact they filmed some scenes after the movie wrapped to feature him a little bit more because must must have been somebody in the studio said he's he's going to be the secret to selling this movie I think kind of underrated in there and maybe it's just because I'm a, a blind follower of Jennifer Jason Lee very young Jennifer Jason Lee. I believe this was her second movie too. It would have been early on. Yeah. I didn't realize until recently her her father was the guy who died on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. That's right. That was probably a, a same year or a year after that. Phoebe Cates, who kind of gave up acting after a while after she married Kevin Klein, but in the 80s she was a she was a big star. Actor I quite like Ray Walston. We talked about him when we reviewed The Stand. I um, think he gives the performance of the movie personal. You I think so. And being a public school teacher even though that type of a teacher doesn't exist anymore really I I get a kick out of uh, his perspective and maybe if I had watched this when I was a teenager instead of my first time watching it as an adult I might have been a little bit more identifying with the kids some of the kids he's kind of an adversary but not a villain which is what I really appreciated about it this time Vincent Scavelli plays a a very eccentric science teacher um, again not out of his, his range or his comfort zone but but, uh, but but he was very good. Uh, another Academy Award winner, Forrest Whitaker, plays the uh, football star. I forgot he was in that. Yeah. Yeah, I, he shows up in movies uh, in a, a show that's coming up soon. I review uh, The Color of Money. And I, for some reason, always forget that he appears in The Color of Money as well. And it's a great performance. He was even from a, like a young age, just a solid actor. And uh, and he just He's makes... blood sport, man. Eric Stoltz makes appearances in there as uh, Stoner Bud is actually... <laughs> his credits, yeah. Nicholas Cage under the name Nicholas Coppola. He actually lied about his age to get into the film. And so he wasn't featured as much as he could have been. So Anthony Edwards was later on ER, Stoner Bud, another another one of the uh, friends for Sean Penn. So there's some other actors I'm a movie nerd and enjoy, but 
talking about, but it's quite a good cast and they're young, but I think they do a decent job. And maybe it's because the acting is so good that I didn't notice in previous viewings until like really critically looking at this that the story is so thin. I think for me, the ancillary, the 90s ancillary to this movie uh, and how I feel about this movie is Dazed and Confused. Mm -hmm. Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused came out in the early 90s and it had two-thirds of Hollywood who were about to break it big. This is the early 80s version of that. And coincidentally, my reaction to the, both of the films are the same. I like both of the films, but I think everybody uh, it seems to like both of them more than I do. I think it's kind of interesting to see these time capsule performances from a lot of people who are about or soon to become like super famous. And I like that it's an edgy, honest teen comedy uh, or dramedy when they were less common. Yes. I think the genre personally was perfected by John Hughes in this era, even though his movies still have their problematic stuff. I was a John Hughes loyalist. I always liked Fast Time, but loved the John Hughes movies. And I don't know if I am just stubborn in that position, but I, I, I sort of stay steadfast there. It's interesting you talk about Cameron Crowe being undercover in high school because he didn't spend his high school years in a high school. He yeah. spent his high school years touring with famous rock bands and covering them for Rolling Stone magazine. And, you know, the inspiration for Almost Famous. So, it was interesting that he needed to go undercover to understand the high school experience. But because of that, because he was sort of looking at it the same way, a, I don't know, a field photographer would do a, a nature study in a jungle, like he just didn't understand the environment. A lot of the stuff that maybe was edgier in the early 80s sort of seemed commonplace now, like that they dared to deal with teen sexuality. They address yeah. masturbation. They address, you know, the not the just not the fear of sex, but also the want for it, the joy of it the the pursuit of it mm -hmm. and um they take the kids seriously they're not owned by their parents they're all of these things were great for their time but all of these years later it's just what's expected it's the bare minimum that what we would would, would ask from any movie set in a high school setting what yeah. makes the movie work for me is not the comedy it's not the story it's the cast that's sort of the beginning and end of my review yeah. <laughs> i've got a lot more to say but that's where i kind of land i think you know it's hard to recognize what the reagan 1980s were like for for cinema you've addressed it on your show particularly with the censorship around serious like Friday the 13th, how they, they would cut the heart out of a lot of these movies. And so I think it's kind of remarkable that this movie was released as it was. And pretty early on, like Jennifer Jason Lee, I don't know how she, old she was when she shot this. I don't think she was, she wasn't a teenager. I don't think she was high school age, but she, she has two scenes where it was quite graphic nudity. And she did actually look like she was 15 years old uh, in this performance. They, uh, they have a slightly more famous nude scene with uh, Phoebe Kate's. Phoebe Cates always seemed a little bit older to me. Like she seemed yeah. like it was in her 20s, but Jennifer Jason Leah has always had kind of a young look. So you feel a little bit uncomfortable in those scenes, but that is kind of effective in a way because they're uncomfortable. Like these kids are uncomfortable and trying to trying to figure things out. Something terribly cringy about that awkward sort of adolescent first sort of timid exploration of sexuality. 
it's so awkward and personal to each person that even witnessing it vicariously through the artifice of film is uncomfortable. Like mm -hmm. right here, we're seeing the marriage of comedy and horror because like it has this cringe sort of aspect to it. This almost feels forbidden, like you should look away or you shouldn't be seeing this. But all it's being is honest. I mean, there, there, there's a lot to like. There's some characters that you like, some characters you don't like, but sometimes there's characters that you like for a little bit and then they do something absolutely horrible. Whoops. And mm -hmm. guess what folks, that's high school. I've, I've spent 18 years working in high schools and I don't obviously get to the point where I know what teenagers lives are like outside of school that much but I there's something that feels very authentic about about what was done I think Crow even though he's an outsider looking in I think he picked up on at least superficially some things that worked really well I, I would say a highlight are this this battle throughout the film between Ray Walston as this no-nonsense uh, history teacher and Sean Penn playing uh, the stoner dude who's Spicoli. Yeah, he gets remembered above everybody else in this film and he breaks every single rule that this teacher has, shows up late, wastes the class's time, orders pizza when there's no food allowed, all, all kinds of things like that. This movie has such a cool payoff to that relationship though because we're used to seeing this in movies, this antagonism between uh, class clown or troublemaker and teacher but what we don't see is on prom night this guy uh rings the doorbell knocks the door on the door and this teacher comes in and talks to this boy and fills in the gaps of time that he wasted in the class to make sure that this kid knows the content of the class before he leaves high school he's and not gonna let this, this kid escape his net even no. though he's done everything he possibly could to avoid learning he's gonna stick it out to the zero hour to teach this kid whether he wants to be taught or not. I don't know how believable it is, but just to have such a heroic position taken on a teacher in an 80s high school film, I mean, you're not going to find that in John Hughes. You know? No, no, that's that, and I think John Hughes deals with teen sexuality and that kind of thing, but maybe not to the level that this movie does, but also just, yeah, that extra step, like the principal in, in The Breakfast Club is a two-dimensional villain. Interesting two-dimensional villain, but he's a two-dimensional villain. And hate the, the students that he he lords over. It's not yeah. enough to rule them. He has to, on some level, hate them. Yeah, and that's not what this guy's about. At all. This guy, my job is to teach these kids and to make sure that they have learned in whatever way I have to do it. I, I've had the great fortune of working with some people like this. To my knowledge, nobody that I've worked with has actually gone to a person's house and knocked on the door and, you know, done something like That's that. That's the line, uh, absolutely. <laughs> but I admire where he's coming from. It's it's a it's a more interesting portrait of a, of a teacher. I, I guess the, the comparison movie I would come up with as far as kind of the, the darker nature, but also somewhat maybe exaggerated, but closer to reality than we think is uh, the movie Election, Alexander Payne's mm -hmm. movie as well, which is quite funny, but has ha has its moments there. I, I think though- That thing is so dark, I thought it would get made today. <laughs> Election is just oh, black. <laughs> maybe on television, but not on 
not for cinema. So I think I'm in a place where it was kind of a lower half for me for Fast Times at Richmond High. I Again, I like this movie, but I would hesitate to say I, I, I love it. There are some some things I can cling on to that are, that are terrific, but I think you nailed it when you said that it's the cast that makes this movie work probably more than anything else. I, I also have to say that it's responsible for some uncomfortableness in my youth. Uh, like I say, most of the uh, John Hughes movies that I would watch at the time, The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, uh, you know, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, they were very PG realm. I remember, I don't know what the scenario was, but my mom was in the room while I was watching Fast Times at Richmond High, oh, wow. and this guy gets gets walked in on while he's masturbating. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. like, that as a scenario is, like, got to be one of the most humiliating things, and I've never seen it addressed in a movie, and the fact that it happened in a movie that I was watching <laughs> with my mom was mm-hmm. just not cool. <laughs> American Pie had a scene sort of like that, but it was, like, quite different with Jason Biggs and, and the pop and uh, Eugene Levy, but it's bad that it's your dad, but it's so much worse that it's a beautiful girl. (laughs) Yes, and and the one he's thinking about at that particular moment. Yeah, Yeah. it's like that is the horror movie moment of the whole film. And honestly, that, that... that uncomfortable sort of feeling that I had brought some negative associations to Fast Times that are maybe not the movie's fault. I I appreciate that it's forward thinking and edgy times, especially for when it was made. But like I say, yeah, it's it's the fact that it has half of Hollywood in it that makes it sort of still relevant in some way today, more so than its its quote edgy content. And I I should mention that performance by Judge Reinhold. Reinhold. Uh, The 80s were the best time for him as uh, the last thing I remember him being in that was really good was he guest starred in an episode of Seinfeld where he was a close talker. You know, he, he had a little bit of a movie career in the 80s and not much since. It's interesting, like he and Phoebe T. Cates are arguably the quote leads of the movie and mm-hmm. they're the two people who really did their careers didn't go past the 80s. Not not so much. They, they I don't know, for whatever reason backed away from Hollywood. But it, it was interesting to see his, his arc is that he starts off his senior year as one of the most important people on in the high school and he loses power step by step by step by losing a relationship and then he gets caught in that masturbation scene and then you know that everybody in the school is going to hear that that happened he gets fired from his job when he loses it on a customer and then he's working at like the, the really crappy restaurant where uh, where he's having to do all kinds of humiliating things so it, it's kind of an interesting thing and then there's a bit of a payoff for him at the end in uh, a scene towards the end with, which uh, also involves Sean Penn in a convenience store I don't know why that made me think of Clerks for some reason. So yeah. James Remar is the guy who robs the store. Fun right. fact. All kinds of interesting guest appearances. They weren't necessarily guest appearances at that time. They were just people getting work. And uh, I think a lot of people were trying to get into this movie. And just this, this kind of new wave of young Hollywood, which now is pretty much establishment Hollywood, uh, came out of this film. So it's, it's a thumbs up review. Just maybe I will not be foaming at the mouth about it as much as I will be with some of the other movies we talked about. <laughs> Thirty-seven girls and not one who can carry a tune. What about me? Name? Susie. Susie Diamond. Catchy. You have any previous experiences? For the last couple of years, I've been on call for the AAA escort service. What would you like to share with us today, Miss Diamond?
Come on, we don't have much time. For what? What come do on, you? Come on. Don't grab me. Don't grab it. All right, so we get two bridges for the price of one in the fabulous Baker Boys. Uh, less famous Bow Bridges is uh, part of a, a music duel um, with Jeff Bridges, and they've been playing together in lounges forever. And for Bow Bridges, he thinks they're kind of hitting the big time here. Jeff Bridges has reached a point in his life where he realizes like this is just a dead end for him, and he is way more talented than he's allowed to be yeah. with his brother. And there's a bit of a vaudeville back and forth comedy act in there, which Bridges is not a huge fan of. He's, he Same sings the jokes. lines with absolutely no heart, no emotion. But they decide that they, they need a singer. And they go through uh, a, a series of colorful auditions. Uh, we get to see uh, Jennifer Tilly in an early role showing up and she does get a, another scene late in the film um, is one of the more memorable ones from these series of bad auditions as you would see in movies of this type and then we land on Michelle Pfeiffer who gives uh, I would argue one of her best performances in this movie so, I mean to, to be blunt mm -hmm. she's just raw sex in this movie she's raw sex poured onto a piano mm -hmm. like this is sort of like young in her prime uh michelle pfeiffer she kind of like had her own sort of peak and plateau of career and then she kind of quit hollywood for 10 years to raise her kids a and bit, yeah. she sort of yeah. come back lately but uh again i think just sort of the absolute right person for the for the role at the time yeah. she was just so appealing so sexy and so what that part needed and so the thing that was obviously going to explode this <laughs> this band mm. uh she's not really the yoko ono of the band but <laughs> I, I think what you're talking about in the introduction is that they plateaued creatively and jeff bridges is willing to recognize that and Bo bridges is he's, not he's stuck in no it, we just need the right person to see this act and this is the act that's going to do it for us mm -hmm. and uh, uh jeff bridges thinks that they need to evolve and she's going to help them evolve but also simultaneously sort of set them on their own separate paths yeah. i think that this and crazy heart have a lot of thematic kind of similarities in that a woman comes into this musician's life and kind of yeah. fixes his life but it's a kind of doomed bittersweet kind of approach to the romance yeah um and i remember seeing it when i was much younger because this was late 80s 89 89 yeah. it came out yeah, yeah it's uh, a couple of years before the fisher came so i think it was a little ahead of me when i first saw it i remember mm -hmm. thinking it was a little bit boring but still finding something appealing about michelle pfeiffer strangely yeah that's <laughs> unusual uh but catching up to it again now I appreciate the elements of the movie. I appreciate the chemistry between the brothers. I don't think Bo Bridges is on the same level of Jeff Bridges, but like, if we're judging on a Baldwin scale, he's closer to the William Baldwin than the Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he can act. He can act. He's fine. He's been in a, a million lot of TV things. roles, actually. He's been. And I don't mean to talk shit about it. I just no. don't. I just think that Jeff's playing on a different level than Bo is. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think that's a controversial statement. Now, would you have spotted that when you first watched it? I, it's hard to say. I think I was blown away by all three performances the right. first time I saw this movie. But rewatching it, I've watched it a couple times since. But rewatching it for this, 
I, I agree with you. I, I totally saw the difference. Yeah. Um, I don't think Bill Bridges sucks. No. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to take a shit on Bill Bridges. I'm just. <laughs> uh, of the three, though, I yeah. mean, I don't think this movie works without Brid- Jeff Bridges and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. There's also a charming old-fashioned thing to the movie. Like mm-hmm. it is very much movie of time. I remember uh, there's a scene where before she's joined the group, she's talking about how her cigarettes cost like 15 cents each. <laughs> And so if she's going to wreck her lungs, she might as well, you know, pay the best price for it. And I'm like, that's adorable. I wonder what the per cigarette price is now. It's probably got to be like a dollar, dollar twenty-five. I don't know. Uh, you watching that now. Is it? What? Wow. Did I go back in time? Yeah, I need me a time yeah. machine. Uh, this sultry sort of thing that she's got going on. This, the uh, like... She just adds so much to their dynamic, yeah. and the show becomes about her. And of course, that drives Bo Bridges mm. crazy. And Jeff Bridges is all on board because he's, you know, all Twitter pated for her. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, plus, he wants to see something different happen here. Oh yeah, and this is this is helping their career. This is shaking like, things up. Bo Bridges doesn't want the act to be dirty or sexual in any way. No. But when he has to go away, and they. They perform on this New Year's Eve in this hotel. They just go for it. Yeah. And he thinks this has ruined their act, and they are both seeing this as the best thing that could have ever happened. Yeah. So I, I, it's a fine movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good movie. I like the movie. I don't know that I love the movie. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's good. I, I it's... think it's a formulaic <laughs> screenplay. Steve Cloves is the writer director. He he wrote a, a really interesting screenplay. It was an adaptation of a novel called Wonder Boys right Michael Douglas the other thing he's known for is he wrote some of the Harry Potter I like the the fabulous Baker Boys but I don't love it there's something conventional about it uh, there's something familiar about it and mm-hmm. again uh, going back to this whole being a critic becoming kind of difficult once you've seen enough movies yeah. I've been watching movies pretty feverishly since you know my early teens mm-hmm. you kind of start to recognize patterns and again, this is going to come up again and again. A good director can take something that's very familiar and make it work. The Conjuring movies, for instance, are fine, very familiar, very fine jump scare movies, but there's nothing new about it. Yeah. In that way, this is a very fine sort of bittersweet romance, mm-hmm. but there's nothing really new about it. I think at the time we had Michelle Pfeiffer sort of revealing herself as, hello, Hollywood, welcome to Michelle Pfeiffer, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that had that extra excitement to it and the extra heat to it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> it, it didn't stick in my memory, and revisiting it, it didn't make me go, ah, I get it now. I was yeah. like, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's one of your lines. It's I fine. know. I think I, I started I using it, it now, much. too. No, and it's fine. Like it's fine to say it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I very much agree with you. This is another one of the roles again pre, pre the dude, where he is very much the straight man. Like it's it's Bridges. He's quiet and he's reacting to what's happening to the flashier characters. Pfeiffer in particular being mm-hmm. the, the flashiest character in the film. I think he does a really really nice job of it. Uh, the other piece that I, I kind of, I don't know how you feel about it, that I just wanted to mention is he, he has his apartment. It's all set in Seattle. He has his apartment, and there's this kid, this neighbor who hangs out at his place 
because it's the only safe place. Because Momo is always having another another man over, yeah. and this is this kid's only friend. I I I maybe I'm a sucker for this, but I, I like that dynamic. It's a little bit of a subplot. There's this point where Bridges just gets so frustrated he takes it out on this kid, and you just feel horrible. It kind of sort of works itself out, but I I, I like that element in there. It just brought a different. I, I kind of well that scene justified the existence of the kid because yeah. before that, it's like what. What's the point? Like, what's yeah. what's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. Generally, other than like I say, that point where he he lashes out at the kid and instantly regrets it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly, you know, what what role he played. There's also again, th- that strange jealousy that the kid had when the relationship spoilers, but the relationship develops with Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. He's, it's like, oh, I, I'm used to him just he's, not. He's going to be way. taking care of her instead of me, or mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, I wonder if, well, maybe maybe not. Maybe that wouldn't be enough to for another film. <laughs> well, I don't know. It I might know. be a little bit too cute. I'm so. not desperate for a sequel. I don't want to... Oh, no, no, I'm not talking about a sequel. I'm just <laughs> a completely different movie about that kind of dynamic because it was, it was just an interesting piece in there. Yeah. And it was the one where I was thinking, oh, this isn't as quite as formulaic as the rest of the story. So Cloves, I think, is a decent screenwriter. Yeah. But Wonder Boys, and I don't know if the source material helped with Wonder Boys, but Wonder Boys was a much more interesting screen. Oh, yeah. And that, that they, was they just a, were lucky to have the two leads that they had. That's another case of like very familiar stuff and stuff that shouldn't be as appealing as we are. Like, mm-hmm. I'm a writer going through a midlife crisis, but like I live a life of unspeakable privilege. Everybody mm-hmm. pity my malaise, right? It shouldn't <laughs> work. We've talked about this a lot. Yeah. It shouldn't work. But it does, it does in Wonder Boys. It does. I think arguably better than it does here. Well, you have Curtis Hansen directing yeah. that movie as opposed to Cloves himself directing. Right. And I think that's, that's might have made the, the difference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, good enough. Well that pretty much takes us to the end of this episode of the Rank and Review Shelf Shedding Movie Crossover episode, so I hope you enjoyed that. Please send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca. I drop every other Wednesday. And please listen to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show hosted by Mr. Jason Debray. But wait, wait, what's that you're saying? You feel like this episode's a little bit short? Maybe I should give you more? Maybe you want to hear a review between Jason and I talking about one of the greatest motion pictures ever made? Well, tell you what, here's my answer to that. Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the theater of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2.
two dead by dawn. So when it comes to reviewing Evil Dead 2, I'm not quite sure what there's left to say about it. I run into this when we're like reviewing classics like The Exorcist or movies like that. We'll, we'll deal with that in a few minutes with Ghostbusters. I really enjoy this series. Last episode, I ended up talking to Scott about both Evil Dead as well as Army of Darkness. And <laughs> so it worked out kind of well Well, that Evil Dead 2 was, was connected to this episode. It's a lot of fun. And I think the reason that it's a notch or maybe several notches better than Army of Darkness, a movie I absolutely love as well, tons of fun, is really only a few people, a very small group of people, realized they were making a horror comedy. One of them being Sam Raimi, the other being Bruce Campbell. I the said other actors thought it was a straight up horror movie and because they're playing it straight it makes everything else feel so much funnier and so much better and that's where i start with it essentially it's the story of ash going to this secluded cabin with his girlfriend uh, and they end up discovering this book of the dead which they read from which unleashes demons that are attacking them and then it's just a matter of ash as the kind of the the lone man initially there are a few people that join him later on trying to battle this uh this demon that has control over this house yes. and it, this movie is so influential there's a, a movie uh, to me a lesser horror movie called from the 90s called idle hands which has involves this hand beating up this kid being possessed this has just one of the greatest sequences in the history of horror is ash having to cut off his hand and his hand beats the crap out of him and it's funny but it's also somewhat horrifying in places there's a lot of blood lots of guts and it's an hour 24 minutes but it feels like there's a lot happening there's you get in and get straight to the action and the action is non-stop for the entire movie it is a thrill ride it is a classic for a reason i love evil dead 2 i suspect that you also love evil dead 2 well make no mistake evil dead 2 is the best 84 minutes of the evil dead universe that includes mm. like ash versus evil dead that includes army of darkness the other thing that i like to tell people about evil dead 2 if they were in the weird position of asking me what the fuss was about <laughs> i would say it's first of all not really a sequel it's much more of a remake and that secondly it's not really a horror movie it's much more of a kind of three stooges physical comedy kind of movie with like crazy special effects and a crazy score that wasn't any disrespect to the original movie i don't think i think that when they made the original movie they were trying to make as scary with movies they could with the means that they had at hand yeah. now several years later they're doing a sequel to Evil Dead and they have much more toys to play with. So yeah, it's called Evil Dead 2, but it's much more Evil Dead Redux as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And they level up Ash's character to such a ridiculous degree. Like in the first movie, a lot of people forget for like the first almost half of the movie, Ash is barely there as a character. Yeah. He, he kind of like finds his salt and gets tougher as the movie goes along, but he is not this badass one-liner throwing zinger guy until Evil Dead 2. But he seems to arrive in Evil Dead 2 fully formed as the Ash we know and love. And it's a splatstick movie, which was a very popular thing, I think, in the 80s. But this was the splatstick movie that got fully embraced by, like, everybody. There's, like, this and Return of the Living Dead. Maybe if you want to go into the 90s, we could talk about, like, Dead Alive or going later into that, like, your, your Black Sheep, where the violence and the storytelling 
storytelling and the beats of the plot are so over the top and so ridiculous that you either have to laugh and love it <laughs> or, or or just it's not for you at all. Like, I do get, like, that Evil Dead is very specific and it's one of those things that you love Evil Dead too or you are absolutely mystified <laughs> as to what the fuss yeah. about Evil Dead too. Uh, I don't think I have to sell this to you at all. I mean, obviously, you're you're on board. Yeah. But to go back where you started, and I've said very much the same thing when I talked about Evil Dead 2 on my show, Sam Raimi, and I'm sure his brother who plays the demon in the basement, and, mm -hmm. and Bruce Campbell all know exactly the movie they're making. I don't think anybody else on set knew. I think everybody else on set, because Sam Raimi wasn't still yet Sam Raimi at this point, no. right? They probably watched the first Evil Dead and were like, okay, we're doing a horror movie. And that one was a popular horror movie so people will see this and they're earnestly trying to do the straight horror performance and it's fucking hilarious it's hilarious yeah. especially as a sherry berry or sherry bird i can't remember the name of the lead actress like she is she's like a, i don't think she's a terrible actress but she's giving such an earnest performance in a movie that doesn't ask it of her that it just it makes me smile every time i know that bruce campbell is able to ham it up and he does so with great panache if you want someone to ham it up he'll do it but i think if you would have cast the entire movie that way it would not have worked it would have been just too too goofy and I mean, I, I don't know. I, may, maybe it's a criticism. I'm, I'm a big fan of Ar uh, Army of Darkness, but I, I think people were well aware that this is now a horror comedy. And so you, you'd see some secondary characters trying to wink at the camera and do a few things that it just didn't work as well as when Bruce Campbell did it. When they kind of lessened... You're not going to be able to match Bruce Campbell. You can't. You're just not. It's like trying to out Shatner Bill Shatner in a scene. Yeah. Just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, the only person I can think of is Jim Carrey that is in that stratosphere but he does something completely different than what Bruce Campbell does and like I mean I think the best horror from Army of Darkness is was when Bruce Campbell is left alone by himself and it's kind of the that second act is kind of the Bruce Campbell show and and we have big sections of that in Evil Dead 2 as well where he's in that cabin for a long time before you know the uh, that the redneck couple and then the, um, the, the the others show up the ones who are connected to the professor who was studying all of this and then they kind of meet their inevitable fates there but well they yeah, revisit I, things in the first movie too this is why i say it's like a remake like if he knew that this cabin was cursed he wouldn't drive his girlfriend out there again right um well she doesn't like her that much yeah i suppose yeah <laughs> but uh they recreate the scene where the woman is is taken by the trees like they i don't know it, it's it's a weird one it's it's almost weird that they called it evil dead too but yeah. i'm not complaining yeah i feel like we we're doing like short trip to it here but i mean it is an established classic i don't think either of us need to sell people on it it I, does suffer from middle chapter syndrome i think i'm sorry I, I was gonna say if somebody who's a horror fan has not seen this movie they need to see it now oh yeah sure. i will say it, it's a trilogy like this is a trilogy of movies and the evil dead 2 is very much the empire strikes back of this trilogy yeah. like yeah. it is loudly the best of the three of them but all three of them are worth your time but there's just something that's so perfectly crystallizes evil dead to me in this chapter it's it's dead by dawn and before we move forward i just want to just shout out those creature effects i know that there's like some stop motion stuff in here and that a lot of people are like that takes them out of it now it's just too much of a cartoon i love stop motion animation i just I, it, it's not going to take me out of it and i still think the big rubbery juicy monsters like henrietta in the basement and the witch mm -hmm. and that turns into the weird serpent creature for no reason but it's awesome <laughs> 
those special effects stand up. And yeah. like, if somebody was foolish enough to do a remake with CGI, I really don't believe that it would capture the same essence of Evil Dead. The movie is ridiculous and hilarious and silly. And like I say, because it's the middle chapter, it doesn't even really have a beginning or an ending. It's weird how loved this movie is, but I am one of the people who loves it. You're right. Like, I don't know. I don't see who we're selling this to. Like, I don't imagine anybody listening to this podcast <laughs> Saying like Evil Dead Two, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> right? There might be a couple people I know if they're listening, they that might not, or it might not be their thing necessarily. But or again, if they didn't know that there was some serious comedy to it, or that this was brought to you by the guy who brought, you know, would would later give you the Spider-Man trilogy and, and you know a lot of really great. Yeah. You know Sam Raimi joints going forward, and he was very young when he made this movie. This is a third professional feature, so always gonna love the Sam Raimi. Like, <laughs> um, I, I go in cautiously optimistic to the new Doctor Strange because he's directing it, right? Like yes. Sam Raimi, just uh, I feel like I can confidently put my 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 money down on the table for his next picture. On the whole, for me too, that's the way. And I know this, and this is one I probably need to revisit, and I maybe wasn't in the right headspace but the only one in that's kind of in this universe that i don't care for is the remake and i know oh, you, i thought you were gonna say uh you were gonna talk about drag me to hell no uh, i can get I, to drag me to hell yeah in <laughs> as far as the filmography of sam raimi that's one i still am trying to figure out people love it and i still just haven't gone behind that but as far as the, I whole, love the remake universe, bad, yeah the, the remake i yeah you really like that one too and that's what led me to think i need to give it another go maybe my arms are crossed and like oh this is not Where's Bruce Campbell? This is not an this is not an Evil Dead movie without Bruce Campbell. Yet I think if they tried to recast Ash or do something like that, that may, would have made me even more mad. I suppose you know, it's yeah. not so much a strictly speaking remake of Evil Dead as it is a reimagining of Evil Dead. And what would Sam Raimi have done with Evil Dead if he had all the tools in the toy box to scare us? Because as much as I love Evil Dead, it's a very amateur, very handmade, very friends made this movie, yeah. and the remake is a professional piece of horror cinema designed to gross you out and terrify you. And I think that's what he was setting out to do with Evil Dead. Whether or not he succeeded, he still succeeded in making one of the most important cult movies of the 80s. And even though Evil Dead is one of the most important cult movies of the 80s, I think Evil Dead 2 surpasses it on pretty much every level. Yeah, it's one of the best horror movies of the 1980s, period. And that was, I mean, that was the decade for horror in many ways. There was so much stuff released in that decade. And for this one to have the legacy that it does, it's it's a great film and people check it out. It doesn't feel in the same way like, uh, I mean, obviously it's a cheesy, over-the-top horror movie, but... It doesn't feel 80s in a weird way. There's a strange, timeless quality to Evil Dead 2. <laughs> I, can wa- I mean, I watched it in the 90s, watched it in the, throughout the 21st century. And it, yeah, there isn't that cringy moment where you're just going, oh, that's very 80s. That, that, it's not that soundtrack cue. Every now and yeah. then there'll be some fashion statements, some sound cue, mm-hmm. or just something that happens that is so out of time that it takes you out of the movie. But I don't, I don't find that here. <laughs> I'm just yep. smiling the whole time. No, it's a good time. And if you want it, like the idea of fun horror movies, this is a fun horror movie. Sometimes horror movies can be draining and like emotionally exhausting. This is not one of them. I would say if you're wanting to have a good time, watch Evil Dead 2.